Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 128, The Pugachev Rebellion, Part 2. Hope you enjoyed that opening piece of music. It was Serge Rachmaninoff's Symphonic Dance. Well, last time, we told the story of the beginning of the Pugachev Rebellion. Now, the time is to finish it. Starting in January 1774, General Bibikov went after Pugachev's army by relieving city after city that was under siege. While the insurgents were for the most part armed and dangerous, the Russian troops were very well armed and, and this is the important part, very disciplined. Major Dmitry Gagarin ended the siege of Kungar, which should have fallen had it not been for the exceptional commandant of the garrison, one Major Alexander Popov. Next for Gagarin was the city of Ekaterinburg and their leader, Beloborodov. In sometimes hand-to-hand fighting, factory after factory was emptied of rebels. Next up was Gryaznov, who led the insurgents in the town of Chelyabinsk. The town of Ufa was liberated by second-in-command, Lieutenant Colonel Ivan Mikkelsen. He defeated a joint Bashkir and Russian rebel force led by Zerubin. The fighting was especially fierce, with the Bashkirs refusing to be taken alive. But Nicholson was noted for his bravery and military tactics from his days in the Seven Years' War. Hundreds of the insurgents lay dead in the snow, with Nicholson's men supposedly only having 23 dead and 32 wounded. Now the target was Pugachev himself and his army at Orenburg. He was to be met with a force led by three generals, Golitsyn, Mansarov, and Freeman. The rebels numbered over 9,000, which was far more than were with the Russian army. The difference was discipline, tactics, and of course, superior arms. Pugachev ordered a wall of ice to be erected between him and the Russian army. They piled snow into walls and ordered them to have water poured over them, which, in the sub-zero temperatures, froze solid. On March 22nd, the Russians destroyed the walls with ease by blasting it with artillery. The infantry charged in from three sides, and the slaughter began. Over 2,000 rebels lay dead, with the government suffering only about 650 casualties. Pugachev retreated to his headquarters in Berda, but he faced a nervous group of allies. He knew that it was only a matter of time before he would be betrayed. Racing away from Berda, heading to Samarsk, where Golitsyn surrounded him and his allies. Ovchinikov and Pugachev escaped again. Ovchinikov, though, headed to the last stronghold of Yaitsk, but was captured by General Mansurov on April 15th, too tired to resist. General Bibikov, though, was unable to see his victory over the rebels as he died suddenly on April 9th. But before we think things were over, we must find out where Pugachev is. A new general was sent by Catherine to take control, Fyodor Shcherbatov. Unfortunately for the Russians, Shcherbatov was a quarrelsome man, constantly arguing with his underlings, many of whom were highly capable military minds. By May, Pugachev and Ovchinikov had regrouped and were on the move with 8,000 new recruits. This time, he had learned his lesson and avoided direct confrontation with the Russian army. Twice, he was able to avoid capture in May when his men were found and attacked. But over and over, he kept getting away and recruiting more men, especially from the Bashkirs and the factory workers, 
And why not? Their lives were horrible, and death was an acceptable alternative to what they had to go through. The government sent emissaries to the Bashkir elders to offer subsidies if they stopped their people from joining the rebels. When that didn't seem to work, they tried threats. One of Shashurbatov's officers told the tribesmen, quote, I will execute you, hang you by your legs and ribs, burn your homes, your property, your grain and hay, and destroy your cattle. Do you hear me? If you do, then take care, for I am not in the habit of lying or joking. During the spring of 1774, the Bashkirs began to savagely attack factory after factory and village after village, killing everyone who opposed them. The slaughter was furious and contagious. Many of the workers in the factories fled back to their ancestral homes. Production at the factories plunged, only recovering ten years later. More than half of the workers left. But by now, though, the people had had enough and started to refuse to join in. They felt that the Bashkirs were ruining their lives and taking away their livelihood. Still, the rebels continued on, and this time Pugachev decided to let loose all hell. He ordered all factories to be destroyed to stop the government from using them to rearm the army. But there was another reason for this tactic. They decided to abandon the Urals and head for Moscow. As Sir Robert Gunning wrote, quote, This rebel spreads terror and devastation wherever he turns, and according to the last accounts, seems inclined to correct his first error and more march toward Kazan and Moscow, that is to say, into the heart of the empire, where it is much feared that he will find a great number of discontented individuals. Pukachev told his comrades that he would head toward Kazan, then, quote, after taking it, go to Moscow and then Petersburg and conquer the entire state. Emelian sent men ahead of his army to spread rumors and to promise the peasants freedom, suspension of taxes, freedom from compulsory military service, and much more. As his army passed through, many of the peasants joined up. Others couldn't wait and sent emissaries begging Pugachev to hurry to their town. Catherine became nervous and ordered the governors in the area to ease up on the peasants and not to provoke them. Her lover, Grigory Potemkin, thought otherwise. He thought Pugachev's promise of no taxes and no recruitment was absurd. As Potemkin put it, quote, Who will guard the borders of our state when there are no soldiers? And there will be no soldiers without recruiting. How will the soldiers be maintained without the soul tax? Where would the Turks have got to by now if Russia had no troops? You know, these are great questions, but the peasants, they didn't really care. As for Pukachev's killing of all the administrators and officials, Potemkin said, quote, Try to imagine who would administer the towns and villages if we had no officials. Who would judge in court, restrain wickedness and injustice, and ward off the oppressor if there were no legal authorities? And who would command the armed forces if there were no distinctions of rank? How patently absurd are the malicious delusions of Emelka Pugachev. By June 21, 1774, the town of Osa was under attack. After fierce fighting, the town capitulated, begging for mercy. Pugachev had the town burnt to the ground anyway for putting up a fight. Now Kazan was in the crosshairs of the rebel army. The suddenness of his appearance and the news of the fall of Osa had taken the defenders by surprise. 
The leader of the garrison was General Pavel Potemkin, a cousin of Catherine's favorite. Immediately seeing that the outer walls would collapse quickly, the soldiers and any citizen who could make it went into the inner citadel, which was much easier to defend. Bogachev's men began to loot, pillage, and burn the town, as well as rape and murder anyone who was clean-shaven or looked German or non-Russian. Emelian had his men continually fire upon the citadel, scaring the defenders to the point of some wanting to surrender. But Temkin would have nothing of it, and hung two men who wanted to give up. Finally, he decided on a bold move, attack the rebels with a ferocious charge. Even though they were terribly outnumbered, the plan worked. 800 rebels lay dead, with another 800 taken prisoner. Three more times, Pugachev tried to assault the citadel, but failed. The last attempt cost him 3,000 of his men and all of his artillery. He was forced to flee the town. Kazan had been saved. General Mickelson arrived and began to pursue the insurgents. Beloborodov was captured, but Pugachev made it out once again. Moscow was in panic as they believed that he might make it to their town and create the same havoc he did in Kazan. Pugachev headed towards the Volga, towards the heart of Muscovy. As the noted author Pushkin remarked, quote, Pugachev was fleeing, but his flight seemed like an invasion. Now the rebellion moved into a new phase of destruction above and beyond anything that had been seen before. It was July, and the peasants had had enough of the treatment they had been receiving from their masters. By this time, Catherine had released the gentry from compulsory service, which brought the landowners back to their estates, where they had total control over their slaves. Also, the government had completely given up any rights to punish the slaveholder if they abused their property. The treatment of the serfs got progressively worse until their breaking point. The trade in serfs was at its highest level in Russian history during Catherine's reign. This is also why so many fled their masters to go anywhere where they would have any semblance of freedom, no matter how harsh the environment. The dagger in the heart of their souls came in August of 1767, when, get this, the empress banned any serf from even complaining about their treatment on penalty of beating with the knout or banishment to a hard labor camp in Siberia. She also had their taxes increased, and when the price of grain increased, their portion of the harvest was further reduced. This should lay the basis for what was to happen next. The country lit on fire. From the Volga to Nizhny Novgorod to Tsaritsyn, from Simbirsk to Tambov, people began to revolt independent of Pugachev. His name, though, was the spark that lit the fire. To put the size of this, we have to understand that one-eighth of the population was involved in the insurrection as rebels or victims. This represented over three million people. This was not something that you could control by sending an army against a band of rebels. It was engulfing the countryside and the cities with the peasants rising up in numbers and overwhelming their masters and slaughtering them en masse. No longer was the rebellion fed by factory workers or tribal horsemen like the Bashkirs. Now the peasants rose up, the agricultural workers and serfs from the private estates making up the majority of the fighters. Pugachev moved up and down the Volga Valley, 
freeing the serfs and killing their masters as he proclaimed a new time in Russia. Catherine thought that this was the rambling of, quote, essentially that of simple Cossacks. But that was exactly what the simple peasant wanted to hear. Pushkin wrote in his novel, The Captain's Daughter, which is based on the Pugachev Revolt, that the messages were written, quote, in a crude but forceful language and must have produced a strong impression upon the minds of the simple people. Here is one of the most striking manifestos issued in July of 1774 by Pugachev. Quote, By this decree, with sovereign and paternal mercy, we grant to all hitherto in serfdom and subjection to the landowners the right to be faithful subjects of the crown, and we award them the villages, the old cross and prayers, heads and beards, liberty and freedom, always to be Cossacks, without recruiting levies, soul tax or other money taxes, with possession of the land, the woods, the hay meadows, the fishing grounds, the salt lakes, without payment or rent, and we free all those peasants and other folk hitherto oppressed by the malefactor gentry and the bribe-takers and judges in the towns from the dues and burdens placed upon them. We wish you the salvation of your souls and a peaceful life here on earth, for we too have tasted and suffered from the malefactor gentry much wandering and hardship. Those who hitherto were gentry and the lands and estates, those opponents of our rule and disturbers of the empire and ruiners of the peasants, seize them, punish them, hand them, treat them in the same way as they have, having no Christian feeling, oppressed you, the peasants. With the extermination of these enemies, the malefactor gentry, everyone will be able to enjoy a quiet and peaceful life, which will continue evermore. As you can imagine, this excited the average peasant. Writing to General Shusherbatov, Gavril Dershvavin, sorry about that, uh, wrote that the peasants, quote, eagerly awaited Peter Fyodorovich, on whom they have set all their hopes. Even Frederick the Great was watching events with keen interest as he commented, quote, the rural population went in crowds to meet Pugachev and greeted him as their savior. General Galitsyn was quoted as saying, In their blind ignorance, the common people everywhere greet this infernal monster with exclamations of joy. Maybe not surprisingly, one of the most important groups to support Krugachev were the parish priests and monks. Whenever he came to their town, they would meet him with their icons and crosses, bless him, and pray for him, and conduct services in his honor. But not all of them were on his side as was evidenced by the fact that over 200 priests and their wives were murdered, usually by Cossacks or Bashkirs. Time after time, whole villages would rise up, slaughter their handlers, masters, and their families in an orgy of violence, paying them back for generations of abuse. Homesteaders who were converted into state serfs by order of Peter the Great revolted despite being better off than the majority of serfs, as they were allowed to actually own some land. What held all of these diverse peoples together was one thing, the hatred of the nobility and the social order of the day. One captured rebel under interrogation said, quote, Who Pugachev was did not trouble us, nor did we even care to know. We rose in order to come out on top and take the place of those who tormented us. We wanted to be masters 
and to choose our own faith. But we lost. What's to be done? Their luck was our misfortune. Had we won, we would have had our czar and occupied whatever rank and station we desired. Oh, did I just give away the ending? Surely you didn't think Pukachev won, did you? Yes, he had millions of people up in arms and the rebellion was spreading like wildfire. But no, this was not going to turn out well for Mr. Pugachev, his band of rebels, and of course, the lowly peasant. Still, for a five-week period, we have hundreds of bands of marauders running amok along the countryside, murdering their hated overlords. A number of historians claim that this was Pugachevshina without Pugachev. A major reason this part of the rebellion was to prove unsuccessful was that there was no effort to consolidate the movement or to work together to topple the government. Would that have made it succeed? Doubtful, as any time they got together in big enough bands, the government forces could target them and destroy them with ease. Still, the havoc raised was immeasurable. Thousands of gentry, clergy, officers, and officials were murdered. Some say it was around 2,700, but it was likely far more, well over 3,000. Over 10,000 rebels were killed, with the same number captured, and then most of them executed. The majority of the landowners who were killed were not the hated big estate holders. No, mostly the small landowners who had less than 50 serfs. Of those killed, only three had more than 100. Those who had large number of serfs were also very well armed. Many actually had artillery and small armies to defend them. The reason for this was that they knew that the peasants hated them, and they took all sorts of precautions to protect themselves. Many of the wealthy also fled before the rebels could reach them. When attacked, they didn't just look for money or the owners. They wanted to destroy all the records, title deeds, tax rolls, and every item they can get their hands on. Dishes, furniture, books, and statuary were demolished, burned, and shredded. Interestingly enough, there are many stories of serfs who protected their masters from the rebellion. One was Alexander Radishev, who was a very gentle and kind man to his serfs, and he was spared. Others, despite being well-liked, were not spared. Mickelson wrote to General Panin, quote, I cannot adequately express to your excellency how much hatred lies rooted in the hearts of these people. All the barbarities in these villages against the gentry and other worthy men have been committed with the aid of the peasants, who try by every means to catch the masters and bailiffs hiding in the forests and to convey them to Pugachev to be held and hung. Stories of families fleeing to the woods were common. One such family, the Metvagos, sent a loyal serf back into the town to get some provisions but were met by a posse instead of their returning serf, determined to retrieve them and slaughter them all. Luckily for them, most were able to escape as troops from the government were just arriving. Unfortunately, the father was not so fortunate, as he was later to be found hanged in the forest. As he headed south, Pugachev was greeted by the cheering crowds, opening the gates of the city to be the ever-growing army. By the time he reached the town of Saratov, his own personal detachment went from 800 to 4,000. The fear now was that the rebellion would spread to the rest of Russia, which could spell the end of Catherine and the entire gentry's class. Catherine ordered everyone to be on hypervigilance. 
She ordered roadblocks around every district that was not in revolt. Also, orders for 70,000 rifles were made to make sure that they had enough for any subsequent rebellion that was to come about. Pugachev had now taken the cities of Penza and Saratov, but the end of his orgy of violence was coming. He was somehow forced to acknowledge his first wife, which became a chink in his armor of invincibility. From here, after having a three-day feast in celebration of all his successes, he headed toward Tsaritsyn. This was to be the beginning of the end. Heading into the dawn, Pugachev hoped to gain support of the same people who supported the rebellions of Bulavin, Bolotnikov, and Razin. Unfortunately, this was not to be, as the Don Cossacks had suffered enough retribution because of their participation in the previous results. Another problem facing Pugachev was that the war with Turkey had come to an end and troops from that conflict were quickly shifted to the Don region to protect against the rebels making their way there. One of the detachments was Colonel Ilya Denisov. Oh, you remember him the officer who had Pugachev flogged for losing his horse. Another reason for the lack of support from the Don Cossacks is that they no longer lived the free bootleg style of their ancestors. They were much more settled and more affluent. For those and other reasons, they decided to remain loyal to the government, which was met with honors from Catherine. The peasants in revolt were now met with an uncomfortable reality. All their pillaging, looting, burning of the farms and fields meant there was no harvest or livestock with which to feed the large mass of humanity. They were forced to forage for whatever they could find. Acorns, shrubs, and moss was what they had left to eat. The church jumped into the fray and sent messages to the parish priests that they had a sacred duty to oppose the rebels. A pair of proclamations were sent out with the first saying that Pugachev was an instrument of the devil and, quote, a wolf who falls upon the sheep of Christ's flock. He is an enemy of God and the church and the fatherland. Pay him no heed if you wish to hold the keys to the kingdom of heaven and eternal salvation. General Panin now made an offer to the peasants that they would be given a general amnesty if they laid down their arms and that a huge reward would be given to the person or persons who turned in Pugachev. Arriving at Tsaritsyn, Pugachev and his men thought that the city would be another walk in the woods and they could take it without a fight. They were to find that these beliefs were way off base. On August 21st, he and his men tried a full-out assault, but the garrison rained down artillery and rifle fire on them. Then came word that Mikkelsen's army was nearby and ready to pounce. Pugachev decided to head towards Cherniyar with the army in hot pursuit. Instead of continuing on, then Emelian, for some reason, ordered his men to turn around and attack Mikkelsen's men. His rebel band, now about 6,000 strong, was cut down with ease. What was left of his men before the attack was mostly made up of poorly armed peasants with only 300 Cossacks and fewer factory workers and Bashkirs. The ones left were the dregs of the rebellion. Many were freed prisoners or tribesmen or boatsmen. While the counterattack by the rebels was fierce, by August 24th, thousands were killed or captured after being pounded by cannon fire. Surprisingly, guess who made it out? Yep, our old friend Pugachev. For his part of leading the assault, Mikkelsen was awarded the Order of St. George, 
a lavish estate near Vitbesk, along with a thousand serfs. He was lionized by the state and was given full military honors and made a full colonel. Bugachev was with a small band of Confederates who were by now tired and hungry. They questioned the veracity of the man they followed, saying that it was, quote, better to abandon our lawlessness and transgressions and to accept our well-earned execution rather than perish unrepentant on the steppe like wild animals. Like Razin and Bulavin before him, Pugachev was betrayed by his men, seized along with his wife and children, and sent in change to Yayetsk. From there, he was put into a small iron cage and transported to Simbirsk, where he was interrogated by General Panin. Off to Moscow he went, crouching in the small cell in rags when he arrived in the old capital. People from all over came to see the man, many showing pity at his now very sad state. A trial was held at the Kremlin, but it was merely a formality. As Catherine wrote on December 21, 1774, quote, In a few days, the farce of the Marquis de Pugachev will be over. His sentence is prepared. Only a few formalities must be observed. For his part, Pugachev claimed in his defense that he was but a pawn of the AA Cossacks, and that now all he was was a scapegoat. The sentence announced went as follows, quote, Emelian Pugachev will be quartered, his head mounted on a stake, the parts of his body carried to the four quarters of the city and put on wheels and then burned. What was not allowed was the use of torture by order of Catherine and that he was to be decapitated first before being quartered. She did not want him to be a martyr like Razin. Others, like the procurator of the Senate, Prince Vesiminsky, wanted him broken on the wheel, quote, and thereby distinguishing him from the others. The others being four Yaik Cossacks, Shigaev, Perfilev, Padorov, and Tornov. On January 10, 1775, Pugachev was taken to the banks of the Moscow River below the Kremlin walls, where he was beheaded and then quartered. As was ordered, his head was put on a pike, his body taken to the corners of Moscow, and the next day the scaffold and his body parts were burned. As for his poor wife and children, they were put into prison at the fortress of Kekskom, where they were to die. Sadly, one of his daughters was to live for 60 years, dying only in 1834, the year Pushkin was to write the story of the rebellion, the captain's daughter. The other accomplices, Zorubin and Beloborodov, were executed, while the others, like Miaznikov and Kozhvinikov, were exiled to hard labor in Siberia. The nine Cossacks who betrayed Pugachev were pardoned. Catherine ordered that the Yayik River be named the Ural. The Yayik Cossacks were now to be known as the Ural Cossacks, and the capital of the region to be renamed Uralsk. Sumovaiskaya Stanitsa, the place, the birthplace of Pugachev and Razin, was to be moved and renamed Potemkinskaya. While there were still traces of the rebellion around the country, for the most part, it was finally over. Despite an edict being handed down by Catherine that all talk of it was to be consigned to, quote, eternal oblivion and profound silence, his name was to carry on. Her son Paul, for instance, in his three-year reign, had to deal with nearly 300 disturbances in 32 provinces, 
many using the name of Pugachev as the spark. Join me next time as we look back at the four revolts, what its legacy was, an effect on Russia would be, and a comparison to something that's going on today in the United States. And again, I want to, I want to, uh, how much you say, uh, apologize for some of the things I'll be saying in the next one. It's going to be a very controversial podcast and, uh, hope you enjoy it and don't get offended by some of the things that I say. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, reminder, I'm still blogging on my site at RussianRulersHistory.com and, uh, I'd love you to visit it when you can and sign up for the updates. Maybe make a small donation or a large one to keep the podcast going. Also, if you have a moment, don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes to help boost its ranking and get more listeners. You can also always join us on Facebook as well, where you can ask a question, leave a message, or make a suggestion. So as always, das vidanya y spasiba bolshoya.